Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessedness of being able to sing your praises. And we ask now that you would just break this bread of life for us, break the word of God so that we can uh, take it in and understand it, be blessed by it, as we have already. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this has been a long time goal of mine to be able to preach the book of Romans. I've often planned on doing it, but it's it's never made it happen for one reason or another. So I'm excited to finally be here to begin. Sometimes it's good, oftentimes it's good to have a helper that the Lord sent you so that when you start going back and forth and saying, I think I want to do Romans. If I heard to say, for goodness sakes, do it. You've been talking about it for 10 years. And so uh, I'm thankful. So not necessarily, maybe it was the Holy Spirit through my wife, but definitely time for me to jump into this. Um, I've been a little bit afraid to do it, I guess, because it's a heavy task. There's lots of doctrine. And some men have begun to teach through Romans and stayed in it for years. Now, I'll say up front, I don't plan... Uh, on that happening. Uh, I do, however, anticipate about 30 or 40 sermons. That's roughly only two a chapter. That's not too bad, but it probably will be more than that, but certainly not less. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we've named our youngest son after, one of the, has one of the more well-known expositions of Romans, a whole commentary set. It's been put into a commentary set. He preached this midweek service, I think on Fridays, they called it their midweek service, at Westminster Chapel in London in the mid-1900s, and it took him 13 years to do, I think, just the 14 chapters. He didn't even, I don't know that he did the last two. Um, In fact, he has 29 sermons just on chapter 1. So I'm going to try to not be that long. Um, I don't know that I could hold your attention that much. But it's it's an incredibly comprehensive book. Perhaps one of the most comprehensive books in the Bible as far as doctrine is concerned. I believe that the theme of the gospel uh, of uh, Romans is the gospel of God. You could probably find other themes, but this seems to be most prominent, the gospel. Or, in a longer way, the theme of Romans might be the righteousness of God manifested or revealed through the gospel of God. It's no wonder that people have turned to Romans to explain the gospel because I believe that the gospel is completely explained 
from all the way from the fall in the garden to the glorified state of man in eternity in this book. There is certainly a comprehensive view of God's righteousness being freely given through Christ for the glory of God. You may be aware that people often use this book, the book of Romans, to explain the gospel. You might have heard of something called the Romans Road before. And it's because uh, there is certainly passages like beginning in Romans 3 that explain all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we are all sinners. And, of course, it's traced out. Uh, chapter 1 um, through the book, throughout the book, at least the first four chapters, that all men have sinned, Jew and Gentile, and they need a Savior. And, of course, um, in uh, chapter 6, we read that the gift of God, though, even in light of our sin and sin bringing death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then you back up and you read in chapter 5 that, um, that God has blessed us with peace because we've been justified. And then um, it goes on in chapter 8 to say we therefore have no condemnation because we are in Christ. And so people use Romans. Now some go to chapter 10 then and say if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, confess with your mouth of the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised from the dead shall be saved. Because with the mouth confession is made and with the heart man believes unto righteousness. And it goes on a little later to say all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, unfortunately, we've taken that so literally that we make people say prayers and so forth to be saved, but I think the emphasis is on believing. All those who call on the name of the Lord, you won't call them unless you believe in them, unless your heart has been changed and given righteousness to believe. You will never confess them in any ways. And we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 10, what I think that's referring to. And that confession is a lot bigger than a one-time prayer. I believe it's something we'll do throughout our lives if our heart has been changed. But this book has been very influential, this Romans um, letter in the New Testament has been very influential throughout the church ages. Augustine of Hippo that you perhaps have heard of in the 4th century, a man who is living a very pagan lifestyle at this point in his life, I found even had fathered a few children outside of marriage. Happened to read in chapter 13 of Romans this verse. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, and not in quarreling and jealousy, but rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Not long after reading that, the Lord, by His Spirit, used that to convert Augustine to faith in Christ. And he became one of the most influential church figures, if not the most influential figure, from the time the closing of the canon or, or the writing, the completion of the New Testament, all the way up to the Reformation. He was perhaps the most influential church figure that we know of. He was tasked, you may remember, in the, third, uh, in the fourth century of refuting one named Pelagius in what has become known as the Pelagian Controversy. Just to sum it up, this was a heresy taught, beginning with Pelagius, that man is basically good. 
that he is able to save himself apart from any help from God. That man's free will is more powerful than anything. That the cross of Christ overcame the fall in such a way as to sort of put us at a reset back to where Adam was before the fall. And that we are not born in sin. Pelagius didn't like the teaching of Romans 5 that Adam's sin has been passed down to us. In fact, he taught mankind since the cross we are able not to sin. And so Augustine basically used the book of Romans to refute the Pelagian controversy, and thankfully he did. It's had a great impact and even is still being revived at different times in our day, but thankfully he was able to put it down then and mostly squash it, though there's no new thing under the sun, so these heresies keep coming back around time after time. You may be aware that um, the book of Romans was very instrumental in the conversion of Martin Luther. As he read Romans 1.17, it really changed and shook him. He understood that all the things he was trying to do to get to God, all the works, all the good deeds, and all the pilgrimages, and all the sacraments and penances, all those things, he found out a man is justified before God by grace alone through faith. And, of course, that shook the world and has never stopped shaking the world and really just returned us to a biblical understanding of salvation. Also, Romans was instrumental in the conversion of John Bunyan. You may be familiar with Bunyan. In Pilgrim's Progress, he was, uh, Romans was also instrumental in the conversion of John Wesley, though we uh, know he was influenced later by others. But certainly... Um, the book of Romans. In fact, I read that Wesley was listening to somebody read Luther's commentary on Romans in the introduction about the gospel of grace, and that's what converted Wesley. Anyway, so that little bit of introduction out of the way, let's look at the writing itself and just these few verses to begin today. We know, of course, the author is Paul, the apostle who was Saul of Tarsus, converted. We know about his conversion. Uh, you can read about that in Acts several times. But to the church at Rome, which he had never visited at this time, he didn't found these churches, but there was a church at Rome. I don't think it means just one single place of people gathered, but I think the church of Christ was alive and well in Rome. Many had scattered there perhaps from the day of Pentecost. But Paul says, as he introduces himself, I am Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. You may have heard somebody mention this Greek term before in the New Testament, doulos, which is often translated slave or bondservant. Paul says, I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not very proficient in Greek at all. I can still read it, sort of. So I always point out, you know, I'm not trying to uh, fool anybody like I read, sit around and read the Greek New Testament. But I did, as I was studying, just look at this passage in the Greek language, and I found it interesting that the book starts like this. It doesn't have a definite article. So Paulos, which is 
Greek for Paul, obviously, and doulos for slave. That's how it starts. Paulus doulos. And I thought, now that's a great way to introduce yourself. Paul, slave of Christ, Jesus, bondservant. I think this says much about what Paul thought of himself. He thought of himself in the terms of his relation to Christ. And this is the only way to think of being a Christian. Because we belong to him. In another place, Paul says, we were bought at a price. We are not our own. So I think Paul is saying to the people who would get this letter, hey, when you think of me, forget about me and think of Christ. I'm not a big deal. This is very contrary to what much of popular Christianity and celebrity Christianity would say today. Ministries are often associated with people's names, not so much with Christ. Paul says, no, Paul, let's do this. I'm no, nothing but a slave. I'm a servant of Christ. This is why our relationship, by the way, is described in the New Testament as redemption. That's another term of slavery. You've been purchased out of bondage and slavery of sin, Paul will say, in another place, and you have been redeemed into the service and bondage of Christ, right? We've been bought out of a real bondage which held us in sin, purchased to a freedom which is still a bondage to Christ. In fact, Paul will say in Romans 6, you have been set free from sin and made slave to righteousness. We've talked about this a lot on Wednesday lately, what it means to be really truly free in Christ. That we have this liberty like no other. We've been purchased out of sin and bondage to sin in the wrath of God in the dominion of Satan, in the world, and all these things we've been bought out of that and purchased into a relationship with Christ, which is true freedom and liberty. And this is both an actual fact and a realized rank or position. We have actually been purchased by Christ, and we are His. And I say it's a realized fact when we act as though this is true. And that's what Paul is saying. Not only have I been purchased out of what I was in, but now I'm under the bondage of a new master. And this new master causes me to love his law and causes me to love his word and want to obey it. Though Paul will agree, and we'll see this later, he didn't always do that because he's still in this body of flesh. But that's true of us as well. You know that. We have... An actual truth that if you belong to Christ, if you have faith in him, you've been purchased out of. You've been, first of all, brought to life from death spiritually. And you've been purchased out of slavery, the slavery, the bondage of sin. And the punishment of death and hell. And you've been bought and brought into life and under the obedience of as he will say, and we'll look at it in a minute, the obedience of faith. That's just true. There are some things that have to be and need to be true about us, and when we recognize they aren't, we need to seek God for repentance and ask him to make them true. Right? I'm a pastor, an elder in this church. You ought not see me in, out in the world 
acting in such a way to cause people to say, isn't he a pastor? I thought he was a pastor. I'm a husband and I'm married. Nobody should see me out in the world and see me acting in such a way to have to ask the question, I thought, is he not married? And so the same is true for us as believers. Do you not belong to Christ? Yeah. And so we seek him for repentance and a love for his word. And we strive to obey him because we have the confidence to know that he has ordained that he will accept our obedience, even as sinful as we are. He will accept our obedience. So Paul goes on to say, not only am I the bondservant of Christ, but I'm an apostle, which means one sent. And more specifically, chosen and sent with a special mission, with the full authorized as a full, fully authorized representative of the sender. We'll probably talk more about what it means to be an apostle later. But I like that Paul says here, I'm an apostle set apart or called of God for the gospel of God. And right away, I think he gets into the, hey, here's going to be what I'm writing about in this letter. The fact that God has set me apart for the gospel of God. He'll say in verse 5, we received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you in Rome. And so Paul is setting forth his purpose in writing and his authority and responsibility to write, which is the same for his life. He says, I have a responsibility. I have this grace upon me and this calling upon me, which brings a responsibility for me. In other words, he's saying, basically, I exist for this. God made me for no other reason than he was going to save me and call me to obedience that I might preach the gospel of God for his people to bring about their obedience of faith. I'm a servant of Christ set apart by him, by grace and apostleship. It brings along with it a stewardship, a responsibility to guard the gospel and to preach it, to bring about the obedience of faith. This is a beautiful thing. Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ, an apostle of Christ. And both of those give me the responsibility to what? Make converts? No. To help people decide on Christ? No. He says, I have one responsibility. I've been set apart to the gospel of God to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Man, I think that's where we need to get to in our understanding. What are we trying to accomplish when we preach the gospel? Do we need to see results? Do we need to see people or hear people say certain things? Do we need to get people to do stuff? No, that's what we need to point people to, obedience of faith. Believe Christ and obey what he said. That's what the gospel has called all of us to. Obedience of faith. Now notice also he says some interesting things about this gospel of God. And we'll talk more about this next week. But I love how he says it here. 
He says, first of all, this gospel has been promised beforehand through his prophets, through God's prophets in the scriptures. So in other words, Paul is saying, hey, I'm about to write to you about this gospel of God. It's nothing new. And he'll really delineate this more as we go through this book, especially in the first four chapters. He really talks about the gospel and into chapter 5, even 6. This is not a new gospel. It's been around. In fact, I think that's why he talks about the garden in Adam. It's been around since Adam. You know, this is what we believe, and I hope you, some of you haven't been here for Wednesdays. We've talked about this a lot. The idea of basically the Bible gives to us three covenants. And the whole Bible works under this framework. You have the covenant of redemption, which was made within the Godhead before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 explains this. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit made a covenant to redeem the people that he calls the elect. And he is keeping that promise. Then there is a covenant of work. So he created Adam, put him in the garden, and said, Adam, you'll live if you do this. And of course, we know Adam didn't do this. He disobeyed. He failed the covenant of works. And from there till now, we live under a covenant of grace. And that's what Paul is saying. Hey, this gospel was preached to Abraham. He was actually preached to Adam. That's the gospel I'm preaching. The one that Jesus Christ made evident, made manifest, revealed. This is not a new one. And then he goes on to spell it out more. The gospel of God which concern, is concerning his son. His son, Jesus, who was the physical descendant of David... But spiritually speaking, there's none like him. He physically descended from David by birth. But he's the son of God by declaration. According to the Holy Spirit at his resurrection, Paul says he is Lord. And we'll probably talk about this quite often. There's no way to mistake the divinity of Christ if you just read the Bible. Jesus is Lord. He is eternal. He is divine. He is God. So this gospel of God concerning his son Jesus demands and will receive the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, Paul says. But notice what for whom he says the obedience of faith will come. Verse 6, all who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Who's going to be saved? All that God calls to be saved. Who will be saved? All the elect of God. Who will be saved? Everybody that God intends to be saved. There will be none left out. All who are called to belong to Jesus Christ from all nations, and he's saying including Rome. All who are called to belong, he says. And then he goes further. All who are loved by God and called to be saints. Who's going to be saved? All who are called, all who are loved. Remember, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. This is what is called in theology the effectual call of God. There's a general call of the gospel, which I try to do every week, where a man tells you, here's the gospel, that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
And unless God steps in and does something, and he has done something, he sent his son who lived perfectly according to the law, never sinned, yet went to the cross and took your place, became sin for you that you might be given or made the righteousness of God in him. That's the good news of the gospel. And all I can do is tell you that and point you to that and call you to the obedience of faith now. Believe this. But God, with his whole, by his Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, through that preaching, will then call his people to hear and understand and be saved. That's the effectual call. I can't make this thing effectual in your life, but God, the Holy Spirit, can. And as Jesus said, the Father will bring those he calls to me, and all who come to me I will know I was cast out, but I will raise them up the last day. There's a general call of the gospel and an effectual call of God to those who are loved and called to be saints, those called to belong. And man, I've said this often, but I'll say it again. This is not a reason for us to sit around and go, well, that's not fair. What kind of God chooses some and not others? It's rather a reason of hope and encouragement to say, if God has his people in Rome and everywhere else, in Bremen and in Carrollton and everywhere, <coughs> and he's going to call them effectually, if I'll call them generally, then I have great confidence just to preach the gospel and know that God will do what he does. And I can't make it fail. No matter how poorly I do it, God's word will not return to him void, but will accomplish what he sent it to do. And the gospel is God's, and the people he calls are his. And I love the way Paul points this out. Those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. If you can hear this and believe it, do you understand how amazing that is that you are called to belong to Jesus Christ? What a wonderful, awesome thought. Later in chapter 8, Paul will describe this way better. What we refer to as the golden chain of salvation where he says, we know... For those who love God, all things work together for good. Most of us know that part. But then he goes on, for those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those who he predestined, he called. There's that idea. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. It's a beautiful chain that's unbroken. If you are predestined, he'll call you and he'll justify you and he'll glorify you. For his namesake, Paul says. At the close of this book, in chapter 16, Paul concludes with a doxology. And he comes back to this idea of the obedience of faith. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Listen, to believe God, I've said this and I want to say it again, to believe God in the gospel is not a plea, it's a command. God says, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased, believe in him. 
We need to preach it as such. Hey, there is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. Luke even mentions in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. There's this idea of obedience to the faith, the faith that's in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture. I pray that it's yours and that you believe, and if not, you will believe. And I pray that when we get done with this book of Romans that we'll all believe even more and have our faith strengthened and our courage to preach the gospel knowing that God will do what he has said he would do and he will bring those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ into the church. That's what he does. That's what he does. That's what he's done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful word. Thank you for this book. I don't guess really any books in our scripture are more important than others, so I don't want to put that out there, but I thank you that this one's been so instrumental for whatever reason. It just seems to be such a compendium of salvation and the work of God in Christ. And so I pray you'd help us to be able to teach it well and to grasp it and help us all to hear it and receive it and believe it. As we come to this part of our service, we thank you and we want to just give praise to our Lord and that he has called us to obedience of faith. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us and we are thankful. We recognize we couldn't do anything. What could we, sinful, as weak and as finite as we are, what could we possibly do to persuade or impress a holy, eternal, righteous God. And we know the answer is nothing. And so we cling to Jesus because you said that you're pleased with him. So help us to believe him more. We celebrate him in the supper, his body and his obedience, his blood, until he comes. In Jesus we pray. Amen.